this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. A podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. That's right. And today we're... Um, we're at my house, at and my cats house. are climbing on everything. Well, that's fine. Because we're, we're in a little bit of a rush, because i got to get to work later. So. Yeah. Um, and we don't have any updates. I can't think of any. The Noah Gaston trial that I talked about last time is still on hold. Um, as I said before, the judge declared a mistrial, so he's the one that shot his wife and uh, thought she was an intruder. I was going to... A likely story. Yeah, I'm sure there's some updates, but we can just update them next time. We do have some new patrons. I'll thank them next time. And that helps because we have our new software... Right now we're at, we got a four month subscription to it, but hopefully we'll get a full one once we can afford. To do yes, that. And it's good. It's Hindenburg, which may seem weird, like it's everything's gonna blow up. But I think it's named that because it's for like live journalism in a lot of ways. And like, <laughs> we figure out how to use. We have figured out how to use two mics at the same time. Hopefully, I think so. Last, last time, time. <laughs> yeah, there were some glitches last time. But. Yeah, a little bit. Sorry. But, but you know, that, I think it was human error. That's part of our charm. <laughs> yeah, some people would say that. <laughs> okay, so I don't think we have updates. Is there anything else? No? I think we can get right to it. Well, it's your turn, so. That's right. This is a case I've I've heard briefly spoken about, mostly by Laura Richards on Real Crime Profiles. And I had just read this book, Erased, that I had heard about on another podcast by Marilee Strong about what she terms eraser murderers. And the book came out in 2008, so you can't buy it on ebook. You can't buy a new copy. I found a used copy on Nice and Cheap on Amazon. Oh, I thought it was a library book. It had been. Oh. And, but I bought it used on Amazon. Someone probably bought it at a library sale and then they put it. But whatever. Probably. She goes into a lot of the issues in the book Erased about a certain type of man who kills his wife. And there are interesting aspects, and a lot of them are true of this case. And I'll get right into the case, and I can talk a little about the book as I go. I had a question, though. Well, we could talk about it after. I was just wondering, is it something that's particular to men? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and it's I mean, are, are there any cases of women? In her book, there aren't. Mm-hmm. I'm sure maybe there are, but it's a certain grouping of psychological traits, narcissism, okay. along with some, you know, sociopathology and control, coercive control issues. And at the very end of my report, I have some stats from a law firm in England that talks a little about the same type of thing, and we can maybe talk about All it. All right. But anyway, I got most of my information from the British newspapers, The Guardian, mm-hmm. The Sun, and The Telegraph. There was one part I got from Yahoo News. And I always thought Yahoo News got like AP stuff, but this seemed to be exclusive content. Okay. But those are the four sources, and it was okay. a real mix and match because there's there's just some of the same information and some different stuff. So anyway, in February 2011, Helen Bailey, 46, was living the dream. She was a successful young adult and children's author who in 2010 was nominated for a Queen of Teen Award in Britain. Her Electra Brown series was wildly successful, and that year she launched a new series featuring a character named Daisy Davenport. 
She also wrote books for younger children, collaborated on books. Some of her younger children books included the Willow, the Wood Sprite series, the Topaz series, and the Felicity Wishes series. Ooh. So she was a prolific author. She had started out marketing and stuff, and I'm not sure when she began writing, but by her mid-40s, she was popular and successful. She and her husband of 15 years, John Simfield, were vacationing in Barbados when it all came crashing down in February 2011. Sinfield drowned when he was caught in a riptide while swimming, and Bailey was ah. left to pick up the pieces. She, When she returned to England, she did what many writers would. She channeled her grief into her writing and started the Planet Grief blog, which chronicled what had happened and her feelings about it and her journey through grief. And it was very popular. It was very personal and intimate in a lot of ways. By October, eight months after her husband's death, she was being courted by a widower, Ian Stewart, (sighs) who she met on a Facebook page for people who'd lost their partner. (sighs) And most accounts say she had met him on the Facebook page, but he also was a follow of her blog, of her Planet Grief blog, and some accounts are they met through that. My guess is it was a combination of things. I feel like he was looking for something. Oh, yes. She referred to him on the blog as the gorgeous gray-haired widower before she revealed who he was. And then later in 2015, she wrote a book, When Bad Things Happen in Good Bikinis, about her journey through grief, and she refers to Bad things would really happen in a good bikini if I wore one. (laughs) Wow, way to make light of her. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's all about me. I know it is. She said when Stuart first contacted her, she thought she knew him from somewhere, but then realized, no, that they were just meant to be together and were soulmates. Oh, God. I'll venture that since her emotional and personal life had been laid bare for all to see, he'd managed to figure out how to make himself appealing to her. Oh, yeah. Not to spoil what's coming up, but his long con, I think, started when he first contacted her. Oh, yeah. The relationship at first was through email until, by his account, when he later testified in court, spoiler, one night he drove to her house in London unannounced, and he lived at the time in Cambridgeshire, a town called Lasting Game. I looked it up. It's like north of London. Cambridgeshire. He said, that night became referred to as, quote, fruitcase Friday because I was a nutter for driving up there, and she was a nutter for letting an unknown man in her house. Uh. <laughs> That's a meet cute, I guess. He said they flew into each other's arms. Yeah. Bailey's account on her blog of their first date was a little different. It's, it was either on her blog or in her book, and her book is an accumulation of blog stuff, and I didn't really sort out what was where. But, but her account was a little different, but that doesn't mean what he recounted in court didn't happen. It, one, one issue with this is that she was very aware of her public image and how she was, and I'm not saying that in a negative way, but I think there are details that she kept to herself about things. But she said she wasn't looking for a new love after her husband's death, but Stuart just kind of came along. She wrote that she was shocked when she had, quote, a disgustingly inappropriate thought about him while walking through the underwear department of Marks and Spencer. Ooh, I know. She was conflicted enough or felt guilty enough that she told him to date other women, but also admitted she would have been devastated if he had gone out with someone else. And this, again, was like eight months after her husband had died. Their first date, according to her, was at the National Portrait Gallery, and then they went to an afternoon screening of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy in Leicester Square. 
She felt it was all too soon after her husband's death, so they put things on hold. It's hard to say when this was, but I think it was pretty early in the relationship, and I don't think the on hold part lasted long. It doesn't say how long. In any case, she admitted she missed him too much. Quote, there were no more funny emails, no witty texts, she wrote. Life felt even darker than it was already. I missed him. They started, quote, unquote, uncomplicated dog walking again. I can never determine if he had a dog, but she, the other man in her life, and probably the most important man at this point, was her little dachshund, Boris. And I did read in one account that Stuart came to not be a big fan of Boris's. I bet he did. Because he felt she paid too much attention to the dog. I only found that in one place. Yeah, a lot of places ignored his relationship with Boris. Um, (laughs) But more about Boris later. But in any case, they started dog walking together. And during one walk on Hampstead Heath near her home, he got stuck in the mud and they both laughed. And she recalled thinking, I don't want to lose this man for my life. Yeah, it sounds so funny. He later testified that she said it was too soon to say they loved each other, but he said it anyway, and more on that later, too. She also described him as wonderful, helping with the plumbing and electrics and listening as she wailed after he drove her to Broadstairs, Kent, where she had a writer's retreat cottage or a holiday cottage, depending on who you listen to. And that was in late 2011, and it was her first visit there after her husband's death. But she wrote that that Stuart understood since he'd recently lost his wife suddenly, too. She even braved her fear of taking another beach holiday when they went to Portugal together and had a wonderful time. And no sign if they found Madeline in the can. <laughs> I shouldn't make jokes about Sorry, that. we've been watching that show. Yeah. She wrote that she admired Stuart, who was, quote, a man who can see an upside in the most dire of situations and who reassured her that, that they would have wonderful memories, even if the worst happened. They were both, she says, vulnerable emotional wrecks when they met. This goes against what many who knew him, both when his wife, Diana, died in 2010. Remember, he and Helen met on yeah, a Facebook page grief. for um, people who lost their partners. And those who knew him also when he was with Helen Bailey, many said he showed little emotion or interest in other people. He did seem to turn it on for Helen, though. Oh, I'm sure. She made the relationship public to her readers in March 2012. I've read that she reluctantly made it public, but she didn't reveal who he was for a long time. And I think she didn't want readers to feel she had gotten over her grief or whatever. But at this point, they were already secretly engaged. um, They were secretly engaged less than a year after her husband died. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but she was so grief-stricken. That's one eraser murderer thing. They they love bomb people and push them. Yeah, but also sometimes um, she wanted. Yeah, you're not used to being alone, and you. I mean, she had been married for 15 years, but they've been together together for 22 years. So she'd been in her early 20s when they she started dating. And a lot of people don't like to be alone. No, and uh, you'll read a lot of accounts that describe her as lonely and besotted and stuff. I think it's more complicated than that. But I think she really wanted to have a man who made her feel safe. She also had Boris, though. Of Um, course. Sometime in 2012, she bought a 1.5 million pound seven-bedroom house in Royston, a market village, she bought it with her money. You'll read some accounts that they 
eat, bought it together or something, but it was her house and her I'm name. Sure she bought it with her money. money. Stuart and his two sons, who were in their late teens, early 20s at the time, moved in. She wrote that the big old house felt like home, although it was not always easy, quote, living in a home that came together through sudden death. After her husband's death, she changed her will to leave everything to her brother, stepson, and her friend Jenny Winterbottom. <laughs> I just like that name. But after moving into the Royston estate, she changed her will, leaving everything to Stuart and giving him power of attorney. She, in fact, made it clear in the will that even if she died before they were married, everything went to him. What? She'd done well as a writer, and her estate totaled more than three million pounds, which in dollars is about four million dollars, including the 1.5 million pound house in Royston, the Holiday Estate in Kent, or not estate, Holiday Cottage in Kent, she had some rental property that you'll hear a little more about, and she had investments and stuff that were worth quite a bit of money. Stuart's wife, as I said, Diane, had died in 2010 of a seizure in the yard. More on that later. He was an IT, of course. <laughs> a lot of these eraser murder guys are in computer stuff. Interesting. But he what about worked... dentists, though? <clears throat> There's a lot of dentists. And doctors, yeah. But he hadn't worked since the 1990s, according to some accounts, because... <laughs> Because of quote-unquote health reasons, according to one story I read, other stories are just unclear. Some call him a former software engineer. Some call him a software engineer. One story said he was, quote, enfeebled by a muscular disorder. But if you see video of him, he doesn't seem enfeebled. Nobody else mentions his health issues, so they must not have been that obvious. Other articles describe him, as I said, as an IT guy or software engineer. None say where he worked. Um, So my guess is he didn't work sick or not and another interesting eraser thing is a lot of them don't have jobs or can't keep jobs yeah they depend on the woman and they use they either exaggerate or make up illness or other issues to make themselves victims and get sympathy and I'm not, this isn't stuff I'm just pulling on my butt in this eraser murder book. Early in 2016, he had been told, according to one account, there was a high chance he had bowel cancer. And I'm not sure if he has said this or if this comes from someone else, but it turned out he didn't. He was later given a clean slate. So I'm not sure where that comes from either. No one has said that he's exaggerated or made up illnesses to make himself look like a victim or vulnerable, but it certainly fits with the rest of the story. And since a lot of this is from newspaper accounts, there were no real deep analysis into his behavior. I did watch one documentary that just came out in January, a British one I found on YouTube, called... Oh, shit, I can't remember the title. Um, It's a series... What basically what somebody did after the crime. Oh. To I'll link to it on our website when I get to that. But the host is like this very, he has this pained look on his face. <laughs> it was pretty good, and it broke down a lot of his behavior. He was a lot different from Helen's previous husband, John. Stuart was kind of shaggy and slobby, where John had been suave and sophisticated. Bailey herself, in her 2015 memoir, When Bad Things Happen in Good Bikinis, complained good-naturedly, according to one account, and I didn't read it myself, I got this from another account, that the house smelled of the remains of chicken madras, her artisan cheese was eaten like plastic cheddar, she admitted to missing London terribly, she wrote of being afraid of loss, quote, if things don't work out, then it will be heartbreaking. If they do work out and we live happily ever after, the cruel reality is that one of us will be widowed again. 
She also confided to friends if things didn't work out, she'd be heartbroken. So aside from writing it, she she frequently told friends if things didn't work out with Ian, she would be heartbroken. Ugh. Yeah, I know. Becky just looked him up online. I was looking up to see how to see a picture of him. Supposedly what gorgeous. gorgeous, the gorgeous. Well, I mean, I I don't like to look Shane, but he's not gorgeous. Right, and that's a decent picture of him. If you see the videos of like when police interviewed him and stuff, he many found Stuart fairly harmless and didn't see problems in the relationship. They seemed to like each other. People thought, although others weren't impressed with him. Neighbors in Royston said she was friendly and outgoing. He was aloof. What the hell she saw in him, God only knows," said neighbor. <laughs> Said neighbor Mavis Drake, and I think she was their next door neighbor. She's in that video, and she's in many of the articles. <laughs> Gorgeous gray-haired widower. He was anything but. <laughs> but I think she was besotted with him. Well, Bailey was a wonderful person, funny, clever, cheerful, Drake said. Stuart rarely made eye contact. While Bailey would pop out for a chat, Stuart kept his distance. I never got to know him. He was a bit of a nobody. He didn't have anything going for him. She said, <laughs> Marco Humphrey Lottie, a 59-year-old artist and sculptor who was also a neighbor, said, I saw the dark side to Ian, and it wasn't pretty. He and Helen Hannett Long moved in when he came over to the hedge bordering our gardens and asked why we cut part of it away. And I think this account was from the sun. I told him that it was starting to look scruffy, so we trimmed it down. He then told me that the hedge was part of his and Helen's property, and we shouldn't have done it. I replied that he got it wrong and it was actually ours. It was a bizarre argument given that the section of hedge he was concerned with was only about five to six feet in length and they couldn't actually see it because they put up a fence to keep Boris from getting out. He sort of shrugged and walked off and that was that. Or so I thought because the next morning I heard a commotion downstairs. Ian and Helen had come round and he was shouting and swearing about the hedge. He was trying his hardest to intimidate my wife. He was really annoyed shouting and swearing, and he'd gone red-faced with anger. I rushed down to intervene. I told him very firmly that if he didn't leave, I'd make him leave. In the end, we had to contact our solicitor to get hold of the deed. I know, I love it. To get hold of the deeds to our house to prove that we did own the head. I emailed him the plans as proof, but when I spoke to him about it, he just scoffed and said, I don't care what the law says. <laughs> I say that all the time. Me too. After that, we didn't really have much to do with them and kept ourselves at a distance. In fact, we'd not hear much from them at all, apart from Ian occasionally throwing stones to try to quiet our dogs if they were barking in the garden. And this is me again. That was all a long quote from the neighbor. <laughs> but it kind of shows you what Ian Stewart yeah. was like. Bailey was a person who wanted to feel secure and safe, like she had with her late husband, says her bereavement coach, mm. Shelley Whitehead. And it's bizarre to say she felt very safe with Ian as well, Whitehead said. I'm still recovering from the flu, so my voice is a little off. The way things have... <laughs> this is still Whitehead talking. The way things have turned out, fact is stranger than fiction. And then this article says she pauses and brushes away a tear. <laughs> there was never any inkling or sign that she was anything but safe. And do I have to say it again? Manipulation. Duh! And one thing about eraser murderers... And that I think people are just beginning to understand, even though that book was written more than 10 years ago, is that in a lot of cases, they're not violently abusive. They exercise coercive control. Oh, yeah. But sometimes the person doesn't even feel they're being controlled. And the thing is, they don't have to be violent as long as they're getting their way. Now, here's a guy 
who's unemployed, who's moved in with this very wealthy woman into a house she bought, beautiful house, seven bedrooms on three acres that she bought. And he's pretty much living off of her. Yeah. So he doesn't need to behave in a way that's going to alarm people. They focus on that person like in Dirty John. Right, I was just gonna say. They're manipulative and they know they're the type of people they know how to get you well like kind of like last time when we were talking about con artists it's the same thing. Right, I mean, they know they know marks. Yeah and they know how to get you to do what they want but you don't realize that it's their idea. Right. And she was a very sweet and giving person who'd come from a long relationship where she was taken care of emotionally and stuff. And so I think, so many of these men, as I said, they don't have a history of violence, and that's where everybody makes the mistake of thinking they're harmless. As long as they can control the woman or are getting what they want, they don't need to resort to it. No. And that would ruin the image they're cultivating. And it would ruin the image. It would ruin their sweet, uh, it might ruin their, you know. And some people don't even realize they're being manipulated. In any case... At some point, Ian Stewart began poisoning Helen. <gasps> yeah. Oh, that's right. She changed her will already. Yeah. She had okay. changed her will. Helen told her mother she was tired all the time and had to take five-hour naps. She was also becoming forgetful, and she told one friend that when she was typing, she didn't recognize her own hands. Ew! At some point, she Googled, why am falling asleep in the day and can't stop falling asleep? She told her mother and some friends she was going to make a doctor's appointment to find out what was wrong with her. She was also very busy planning her upcoming wedding to Stuart, and she was very excited about that. On April 11, 2016, she sent an email to a friend at 10.15 a.m. from her iPad. She was a fairly active social media user, but that was the last digital sign of her. Neighbors saw her walking Boris a little later. That was the last time she was seen alive. Stuart like many narcissists who kill their wives do, made his first mistake in not realizing how alarmed normal people would be that Helen wasn't heard from. He told people who asked about her that she'd gone off to the Holiday House and needed some time away, but that didn't satisfy her brother, mother, and friends, who usually heard from her regularly. In fact, her brother, two days after she was last seen, was alarmed because I guess he never went two days without hearing from her. Ha! When Stuart realized that people were alarmed, he called police and reported her missing four days after she was last seen, so on April 15th. When the dispatcher asked him, he couldn't remember her birth date or <laughs> her eye color. He had to guess at her height. He guessed she was around 5'10". When police came to the house to interview him, he said she'd left a note saying that she wanted to be left alone for a few days and that she would be staying at her holiday home in Broadstairs. He couldn't remember the exact words, though, and he no longer had the note. He said he hmm. threw it away. He also referred to her in the past tense. <laughs> One thing he didn't tell them was that on the day she was last seen, he raised the amount of money that automatically went monthly from her account into their joint account from 600 pounds a month to 4,000 pounds a month. Whoa! He'd had a busy day that day she was last seen, including a trip to the doctors to check on some minor surgery he'd had that he later kind of made a bigger deal about than mm. wasn't. He'd had a morning appointment but called the doctor's office to move it to the afternoon saying he had car trouble. Though there was no sign that day that he really did have car trouble as CCTV cameras caught him gallivanting around the countryside. He later said he wasn't feeling well from the surgery, which is why he couldn't really remember things from that day that well. One thing he'd done that day was he'd gone to a solicitor's office 
pushing for sale of some rental property Helen owned at Gateshead. Helen had originally had the appointment, but Stuart told the solicitor she wasn't feeling well and couldn't come along, but the solicitor said they couldn't sell the property without her signature. And Stuart's like, shit, I should have waited to kill her. Hmm. Well, he later called the solicitor again and tried to push the sale through and was not at all pleased by the lack of progress, the solicitor later said. The solicitor later told the jury that during one phone call, Stuart said, you probably know that Helen is missing, and I'm wondering if you can carry on with this transaction in the meantime. <laughs> the Why waste time? You know, the solicitor said, I effectively said no. He talked about a power of attorney, and I said, in these circumstances, we would want to hear from Helen. And so she's missing, but the power of attorney is that she's incapacitated. Yeah. So not really the same thing. Jamie Stewart, his son, who was 24, 2017, so 23 when she disappeared, said on the day that she disappeared, his father had traveled to Cambridge to watch him in a bowls match. And I'm wondering if bowls is bowling. I haven't looked it up. Uh, they keep talking about bowls. Our British people tell it let us know later that evening the pair had chinese takeout at the house in royston where they all lived helen's house jamie stewart told the court when he got home from work on april 12th the day after she was last seen his father told him helen had left him a note saying she'd gone to broadstairs to get some time for herself throughout that week he began to get visibly more stressed out jamie said he was spending a lot more time with myself and my brother and wanting to be around us Several days later, his father told Jamie that he had reported Helen missing. The day after he reported her missing, Stuart went to the Holiday Home in Broadstairs to look for her, something her brother John had already done on April 12th, the day after she was last seen. John had asked neighbors and shopkeepers if they had seen her and Boris, because Boris was also gone. Hey, I just realized today's the, oh, Boris, today's the anniversary. Yeah, I know. I realized that when I was doing this. But yes, Boris was gone. Poor little Boris. But no one had seen them. Despite the fact Stuart said she'd taken her cell phone with her and he'd sent several anguished texts begging her to come home, which I'll get to. Oh, God. Her phone that day, there'd been no sign of it. Everything had gone to voicemail. But her phone that day pinged off the router in the apartment in Broadstairs while Stuart was there. He'd removed the SIM card from the phone, but hadn't thought to turn off the Wi-Fi connection Ah. some accounts feel that this was a huge mistake he made because it put her phone and him that it happened while he was in broadstairs and it was known to police he was in broadstairs others like in that documentary thought he did it on purpose to make it look like she was there. she was there and she could have left her phone there in any case it was discovered on april 21st when an officer examining the router discovered that at the exact time Stuart had been there, the router had connected to her iPhone. Later, a couple months later, police went back to get the router and they couldn't find it. And they found it months later in the Royston house. Hmm. Some of Stuart's messages to Helen, by the way, in the days after she was mis- missing, which he shared with police, were, quote, You not only mended my heart five years ago, but oh, made it bigger, God. stronger, and kinder. Now it feels like my heart doesn't even exist. Our plans are nowhere near complete, and without you, there is no point. He also sent text messages to her phone asking her to let him know she was okay and pleading with her to call. He refused to give his phone to police, though, saying that if Helen was going to contact him, she would do so on his phone. Um, so he wanted yeah, to have it. Yeah, but the police would have it, so... Mm-hmm. Then he said he had lost his phone in Cambridge, oh, and her phone was never recovered. Helen was an avid Arsenal supporter. 
That's a soccer team. Oh, okay. That's the one, you know, the... <laughs> you mean the football team? Yeah, the uh, the original movie, Colin Firth. They made an American version. Yeah, I with don't know either one. Jimmy so. Fallon. Oh, I don't know. I think oh, that one. Yeah, the the yeah. Where but, they changed Arsenal to the Red Sox. Yeah. The Colin Firth one was much better. Fever Pitch. Oh, it was Fever based Pitch, on that Nick yeah. Hornby. Okay. That was all about Arsenal. Okay. But, um, they're big. They're like kind of like the Red Sox. Okay. Um, and, but if she, you say so. She was a season's. The season, well, the Red Sox before they won all the before, time. I know, that's true. Now they're different. But she had been a season ticket holder for a number of years. And in the period when she was, quote, unquote, missing, he renewed through their joint account their Arsenal season tickets, which cost about 1,600 pounds each. After she got an email from the club, this was like a May, that her that the tickets were about to expire, he renewed them. Some people think that's a sign of his guilt. I would say he did it to make it look like she was still around. Or, or he thought he she thought was coming she was back. still around. Right after that, he went on a two-week trip to Mallorca hmm. in Spain that the two had booked months and months well, before. Well, you know, it probably was, you know, was not refundable. He told people Helen would have wanted him to go. But the thing is, at this point, she was still a missing person. And this is the guy who wouldn't even give police his phone in case she called. But now I he's off for Spain to two weeks. Police finally arrested Stewart on July 11, 2016, when he returned from Mallorca. Though there is still no sign of Helen. So that was like two two months after. Three. Three. Okay. April, the main. Yeah, yeah, whatever. They came to the house early in the morning, and he was in his bathrobe. When they told him he was being arrested for murder, he said, You're joking. He also, which seemed like a non sequitur at the time, told his son... The garage door is open and seemed very annoyed by that, hmm. which was just kind of a Freudian slip on his part. Spoiler alert. Or an idiot slip. Stewart stuck to his story while in jail that she had taken off on him while police desperately searched for a sign of her in the house and on the property. They couldn't find anything of her. What did they arrest him for? For murder? Murder. Okay. Um, murder some weird charge like disposal in a core of a corpse in a way oh. to keep the coroner from solving the i think it's basically when you can't find a body oh nice also fraud for some of the money things he pulled people still with this case made a big deal um oh well no body blah 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 yeah, but well, there are plenty of what? murders that are there are in any case, on July 15th, a few days after he was arrested, the day the police were finally going to leave the property without finding anything, a neighbor came over to ask how much longer they'd be. The generator they were using was bothering her mother. It turned out her mother was the woman earlier. <laughs> they said it would be turned off at midnight that night because they were done. As an afterthought, the woman asked them if they'd check the well under the garage. Ooh. Why no? No, they hadn't. They weren't aware there was a well under the garage. According to one story, the former owner had choked it would be a good place to hide a body. Numerous other stories say that Helen, when they first bought the house, made the same joke to her brother with an earshot of Stuart. Ah. The press made a big deal about that later. But I don't think it's that big a deal, really. Writers say things like that I all the time. I think joke, yeah. In any case, the neighbor connected police with the former owner of the house who said it wasn't a well, it was the house's cesspool. A lot of stories weren't very clear on this, but finally through, I think it was the documentary, I got that they must not have a sewer system. Yeah. And the house's waste went into the cesspool. What police had originally searched out in the yard was an overflow septic uh, tank. Oh, okay. But 
stuff apparently went directly into the cesspool and they had to drain it periodically. It was in use. It wasn't some old relic yeah. that had been covered over. It was in the garage with a small manhole cover. Yeah, that makes sense. So the police found the trap door to the cesspool under a car parked in the garage that was parked over it. When they looked down with an underground camera, they saw an elbow sticking out of the excrement. In the cesspool, they found Helen, as well as Boris. No! Boris! And one of his little dog toys. (laughs) They believe Helen drugged was suffocated. They found traces of a powerful sedative in her remains, not when she'd been prescribed, but when Ian had been. Hmm. Examination of her hair showed Oh, she been... must have accidentally taken it and then fallen into the cesspool. Funny, that's what his defense, oh, one okay. of the scenarios. See, that should be a defense his attorney. His defense attorney later said. I'll get to that later. Examination of her hair showed she'd been drugged for months. You know how some yeah. drugs are in your hair. So yeah. Police speculated Stuart put it in the scrambled eggs he made for her. Oh, what a nice husband he was. CCTV footage, which, as you know, is all over Britain. I know. Caught Stuart throwing a duvet away in a dumpster <laughs> the day she was last seen as he drove around to the doctor and solicitor and all those little errands he had. Pathologist Dr. Nathaniel Carey testified later it was possible that she was put down the well in an unconscious state and then drowned. Helen's body was submerged in liquid, including human excrement. Yeah! You know, that's so disrespectful. He's literally just sticking down a shithole. And the cops and prosecutor pointed that out, too. Um, one of them said, you know, every time he took a shit, uh, those are my words, I haven't flushed the toilet, that's where it was going, and he knew that's where it was going. He and, and his sons. Gross. If you've ever lived anywhere with a cess, um, oh, yeah. it's pool, it's yeah. like a, it is basically like a well full of shit. Right. They have, like, diagrams and stuff of oh, it. Yeah. It's hard to tell how big it is, or post-mortem tests show no signs of injury. There were no broken bones, no evidence of bruising or brain bleed. Toxicologist Mark Piper said side effects of the drug found in her system, Zopiclone, which is a powerful sedative used for insomnia, could include short-term memory loss, perhaps leading someone to think their mind was playing tricks on them. They believe he had to kill Boris, too, to make the fact she'd gone away seem real. I'm sure he didn't like Boris. Yes, she never went anywhere without Boris. He's very cute. The vet who carried out post-mortem tests on Boris wasn't able to ascertain the cause of death. No Zopiclone was found in his system. In the statement from Dr. Jonathan Williams, the jury was told it was not possible to confirm or refute whether the animal may have drowned. Oh, so he just like threw, threw him, him in. in there. Why wouldn't they be able to tell, though, in this Because he's probably something. partially decomposed at this oh, point. Right. They've been in there that's for three right. months. Oh, that's right. Gross. Gross, yeah. gross, gross. The fact that Helen was found dead under the garage floor presented some problems for Ian Stewart. Yeah. He needed a new story, and he came up with a doozy. He told police he hadn't been totally truthful about her disappearance. Helen hadn't gone to have some time for herself, but two thugs, Nick and Joe. Oh, my God, these thugs. They kidnapped her, and they wanted $500,000 ransom. The men were former business associates of her dead husband, John Sinfield. Oh, please. He said the pair came to the house, first came to the house in February of that year, demanding to speak to Helen about some paperwork. It was during one of their mysterious visits, so I guess they came more than once, that the men saw the cesspit, which was being inspected by Helen and Ian, 
And Nick, described as a big man with tattoos on his neck, even helped them slide the manhole cover back into place. Oh, that place. was nice of him. So they knew the cesspit was there. The men visited the home again, and Stuart said, Helen said, please go away and leave me alone. And Joe simply whispered back, just think about it. Later that day, Helen disappeared, and Stuart was confronted by the thug Nick, who punched him in, <laughs> who punched him in the stomach. People never realize how ridiculous those stories. Stuart said, it's "Quite sizable stuff. Yes. Not that I want to judge, but Stuart said he ended up on the floor, and was told, Helen and Boris are with us. She is helping us solve a problem. Don't tell anyone where Helen is." He later heard from Helen, with Nick handing him a phone with Helen on the other end. Stuart said, she said, I love you. Sorry about everything. I said, it's not your fault. I love you, too. <laughs> Months later in June, Nick and Joe visited again, forcing Stuart to let them drive their car into the garage. It was then, Stuart claimed, they must have stashed Helen's body in the cesspit wow. without him knowing. That June also, Stewart said he was told by the kidnappers he would have to come up with half a million pounds in compensation. He claimed he hadn't told the police about the kidnapping for fear that harm would come to Helen and his sons. Even while he was in prison, Bedford Prison, Stewart said the kidnappers managed to warn him again about talking Ooh. to police. He said he was attacked by another inmate who told him, <laughs> Don't snitch! <laughs> the prosecutor, Stuart Trimmer, when Ian testified to all this, first he told the police all this, and then in his trial in February 2017, he testified to all this. The prosecutor in court said, The contention of the Crown is that Joe and Nick simply do not exist. They are a figment of your imagination. <laughs> Instead, the prosecutor said that Ian had based his description of the characters on men he knew. Tremor said the two men who resembled the mysterious abductors Joe Sapulo and Nick Cook were guys Stuart knew from when he lived in Bassingbourne in Cambridgeshire, where he'd lived before moving in with Helen. Joe Sapulo went bowling with him, and Nick Cook was his former next-door neighbor. Over several hours, Stuart was repeatedly accused of lying as his kidnapped claims were scrutinized in the trial. The prosecutor questioned why Ian Stuart once referred to Nick as Dave and asked him what reason the pair had for dumping Helen's body at the house. Ian Stewart testified earlier that Joe was a smartly dressed, gray-haired man with olive skin and a foreign accent, while <laughs> Nick had been taller in his 50s with a London accent and tattoos. The prosecutor said, Joe's name might success Sapulo is Italian. He has an Italian accent. He has shortish gray hair. Cook is much taller. He asked Stewart, can you think why anybody hearing your description would have in mind those men? Meaning the two guys that Stuart knew. knew, the yeah. friends of his. And Stuart replied, no, they don't compare at all. And then, in a real Perry Mason moment, a small, smartly dressed Italian man with short hair was brought into the courtroom, joined by a taller, grain man in a suit. You recognize them, do you, Mr. Stuart? The prosecutor asked. <laughs> yes. Do you, Mr. Stuart? Yes, it's Nick and Joe, Stuart replied. But then when the men left the courtroom, Stuart said, those two who walked in don't know each other at all. They're in totally different circles. Implied, yes, those are his friends, Nick and Joe, but they're not the Nick and Joe he's talking oh, about who kidnapped Helen. Okay. Totally different Nick and Joes. The prosecutor also pointed out all the things found in the cesspit besides the bodies of Helen and Boris. There was a pillowcase. There was a dog toy. And he said, somebody has taken the trouble to take all these things back to your house. You must have pondered on this for a long time. Why wasn't Boris's body just tossed in a ditch somewhere? 
Why wasn't Helen dropped off the side of a boat? Stuart replied, I don't know, except that they're trying to frame me, maybe. He even got one of his sons involved. His son Oliver, 21 at the time of the trial, testified his father while in prison told him about Nick and Joe. He said that Stuart said the two men repeatedly showed up at the home to demand paperwork. Stuart claimed to his son that he had been assaulted by the men and on one occasion was given a mobile phone and forced to follow certain instructions. Oliver told the court, When he was telling me about these people, I could see that he was not choking. I could see the fear. Purely by him telling me that, that was the road I can see he was going down. When asked by the prosecutor, what road was that? Oliver replied, I concluded they were involved in taking Helen because of the way he was telling me. There was fear in his face. He was not joking about this. Maybe Oliver believed his dad's story, but no one else did. The prosecution in the case concluded that Ian Stewart had started a long con that began with love bombing Helen, which is a thing in coercive control where eraser killers do it too. She called it something different in that book, but where they immediately start just overwhelming the person with affection and attention to the point where they're, especially if they need it, they're like overwhelmed by it. And that his game all along was to get her money. I think it's difficult in these things to prove motive because people like this, yes, he wanted the money so he could live off of it and more about what he was living off before a little later. But I think they also like the game of it. The person's of a certain use to them. Once the person is of no use, it's just easier to get rid of the person. And I think they get bored of them. Yeah. They just don't want them. They just don't want them anymore. It's like, The defense claimed he didn't need her money. He had money of his own, but all his money was from her. Yeah. The defense also speculated it could have been an accident because she was feeling dizzy and out of it. She could have somehow fallen with Boris into the toy. I don't know how the manhole cover would go back on afterwards or whatever. Nobody bought that. One of the investigators on the case later told the newspaper, he came across to me as a narcissist who really only cared about how things had affected him and not about Helen or what happened to her. He would talk to us until he either got hungry and wanted to eat or got bored and wanted a break when she was missing. Of course, I don't didn't know anything about a Nick and a Joe, and if they had existed, he would have been screaming about it. Usually when a family member reports a missing person, they are constantly asking the police if they have found her. And he kind of lost interest. He, like, when people were searching for her, he, like, went and thanked searchers, and he put up flyers for a while. But then, like, the neighbors and stuff said he just started acting like nothing, you know, was going on. After a seven-week trial, it took the jury only six hours to convict Stuart. Oh, I'm surprised it took him that long. Who was sentenced to life and must serve a minimum of 34 years. The police also started looking into the death of his first wife, Diane. Yeah. Who died in 2010. And he was arrested and charged with that in August 2018. Good. Ian had met Diane at Salford University in 1985 with him telling the court, we met in the canteen and I stole a chip off her plate. That's how we met. You know, another meet cute for Ian Stewart. That wouldn't... I would yeah. that. The pair then bought a house together, going on to have two children. Stewart said that his first wife had been plagued by epilepsy from a young age and her pregnancies were troubled by epileptic fits. That comes from him. I don't see anything from her family confirming that or anything. When she died, he received a number of lump payments, including a 33,000-pound life insurance policy. She had collapsed and died on the patio of their home, and an inquest held three months after her death concluded that the school secretary had suffered 
sudden unexpected death from epilepsy. But relatives at the time expressed huge concerns, and one family member told the Telegraph, we were told at the time it was an unexplained death, and it has worried me. It has been on my mind that it was unexplained. He, Stuart, was the only one there when she died. Hmm. I know her brother and sister have been very concerned. Her mother has been very concerned, too. It's been awful for them. In 2013, you know, long before Ian Stewart was arrested or, you know, before Helen Bailey disappeared or anything, Diane's sister, Wendy Bellamy Lee, even flagged concerns that the family had writing on social media we were and still are numb and completely shocked today as to why it happened with so many unanswered questions. After Stewart's conviction, a law firm, Raid and Solicitors, cited a report that between January 1, 2009 and December 31, 2015, 936 women were killed by men in England and Wales. Most women were killed by a man known to them. 598, which is 64%, women were killed by men identified as current or former mm -hmm. partners. At a global level, it has been reported that 95% of homicide perpetrators are male and that one in every two women victims of homicide is killed by her intimate partner or a family member. Whilst there is no evidence that Helen Bailey suffered from domestic violence at, at the hands of Stewart, this is a post on this law firm's uh, blog, and as she did, it does not appear to have been reported, the femicide census reports that the perpetrators of killings of women will probably have emotionally and or physically dominated these women for years. Many cases of abuse will have gone unreported due to a woman's fear of the perpetrator and due to shame about having experienced domestic abuse. It is now recognized that coercive control is at the heart of domestic abuse. This is where a perpetrator exerts control over a victim's life through a system of intimidation tactics, for example, controlling what she wears or who she sees. And just to further that, I'd like to point out that the Eraser Killer book, she again points out that some people are controlled without even realizing they're being controlled. And these manipulative men are very good at targeting their victims. And one thing about Helen is her whole life was out there for everybody to yeah. see. So somebody wanting to run a con on her knew what she liked and didn't like knew how to speak to her in a way. And a lot of these guys, in the Eraser Killer book, they point out, have gotten away with killing one wife, and they get caught when they've killed the second or third mm -hmm. one. And it reminded Ugh. me, around the same time I was reading that book a month or so ago, there was a story in the Boston Globe about a guy, David McGraw, who was 79, who's in prison for killing his wife, Nancy, in 1990. He had strangled her to death hours before they were going to meet with divorce lawyers. Ugh. Now, the story in the Globe was about the fact that he had bought a $700 plot, burial plot, at Maple Grove Cemetery in Walpole, Massachusetts, and that's where his wife was buried. Four years after that, he was convicted of her murder. Her family does not want him buried in the plot next to her, and they're trying to buy the plot. He will not let it go. And the Eraser Murder book would point out that a lot of these guys try to control what happens yes. to the person even after their death. I don't expect, like, for instance, the Boston Globe to be as obsessed with Eraser Murders and course of Control as I am. But to me, it's an obvious thing that he, he'll be dead. He doesn't care. But he still wants to maintain that control and some of the things in this article are very interesting. 
First of all, he said he didn't kill his wife, even though she was obviously um, strangled and beaten to death. He said she had some kind of heart attack or yeah, something. But... He won't let the family buy the plot, even for twice the cost of it. And it, by law, you can't sell a burial plot for a certain amount more than what yes, it's worth. Yes, that's right. Now, I found very interesting in the story, there was one sentence far down in the story that says, his first wife drowned while they were scuba diving together in a Rentham Lake. And then it just goes on, um, never mentions that again. And I'm like, this guy, and, and so you think about it, they're really all around us. Like, this story, somebody would just read it and think, oh, that's a weird story. Why does the guy want the burial plot? Oh, look at that, his first wife died. But when you look at it in a certain context, obviously, I think I can say he, he probably killed his oh, first I'm wife. Sure. And he... Unless they die of, like, cancer or something I know. like that. And, and, like, the thing with Ian Stewart's first wife, they took his word, apparently, that she had epileptic seizures, and they thought to themselves, well, she died suddenly out in the yard. But this if, must be the only thing. Even if she did have epilepsy, right. he could have hit her on the head and shoved her to the ground and said she had one. I mean, you, you know. Yeah, and I mean, so, you know, we laugh about it sometimes. I'm kind of obsessed with this stuff, but... I think that people still look for these obvious things like a history of violent abuse, which I admit a history of violent abuse is a big deal. Or they look for the guy acting a certain way, but these guys are very good at picking their victims. I think Helen... They're good at picking their victims, because a lot of times people around the victim see through them, yes. but they don't take it very seriously. Right. They're just like, ugh, he's a schlub. Why does she like or, him? Or they'll be like, oh, I can't stand that right. guy. I don't know why she's with him. Um, she thinks he's wonderful, and it's not. they're not always murderers. I mean, like, I, I remember someone I worked with whose husband, she had a really bad divorce. Then she started, she met this guy at church. She was very religious, or she is very religious, probably. She met this guy at church. Mm. Um, That's always a red flag. He, yeah, especially if you met this guy. Uh, I don't know what his background was, but he just was sleazy. And anytime she wasn't around, like so, there was another person who was working with them on their um, kitchen design. This was like years ago. And anytime his wife wasn't around, he was hitting on this this girl. Yeah. See that? Sir. So, and he ended up. Um, he ended up dying suddenly. So, uh-huh, maybe she but she him. lionized him, and everyone that knew him was like, "I don't yeah. know why she." And there's another writer in England. I didn't go and read the thing who got a lot of flack for referring to Helen as being dumb for falling for Ian's stuff, and um, like on Dirty John, a lot of people gave Deborah Dirty shit. Deborah. But the thing is, these guys not only know how to manipulate the person, but in a lot of ways manipulate the people around them, especially if they're not around the people that often. So that people don't see any harm in the person. Although in Dirty John, I'll say that the fact that he His was so... Yeah. The fact that he was so down on her kids, I mean, I can see being like, oh, this is my time and all this kind of stuff. But if the guy were constantly crapping on my kids or saying awful things about my kids, that would be a problem with me but because it, you want the person to at least get along with and like I will kids. also say, and I think her daughters, I agreed with her daughters, but if you have, if you've raised your, I'm not talking about her specifically, but if you have adult, young adult and adult kids, 
have had you all to themselves and they're kind of spoiled and bratty and then you're trying to date yeah. somebody and they're giving that person a hard time and uh, I can see kind of like being like, yeah. Sympathizing with him. Or not even sympathizing, but thinking the kids are overreacting because they're being dramatic. Right, but he said nasty things about the kids Yeah, he was. He was an asshole. And and the thing that also about Dirty John, which has nothing to do with this, but her mother, her sister. Except for it's similar in some ways. But her sister was killed. Remember her? Deborah's sister was killed. And the mother still. Sided with the guy. Yes. Well, one thing, you know, one thing the the book Erased points out, and it's not the first time or last time anybody will ever hear this, is that men who kill their wives, girlfriends, or ex-wives or ex-girlfriends are treated more leniently by the justice system than women who kill a guy because he's being abusive. I know. And there are stats in that book to back it up, and it's a little frightening, people's attitudes towards women and men, and I do think one of the things in the Helen Bailey case, and this is not victim blaming, it's just the situation the way it is, she had her her book, When Bad Things Happen to Good Bikinis, was a bestseller. I'm not saying she consciously felt she had an image to project, but like all writers who write nonfiction about themselves, they're very good at knowing what to reveal and what not to reveal, for instance, she was reluctant to tell people she was engaged to this guy. Yeah. She was reluctant to reveal who he was, and part of it was she wanted to keep it private. But also, a lot of the details of their relationship didn't go with the narr- the public narrative, and I'm not criticizing her for that. You know, whenever you read very, very personal nonfiction, it's still spun. It's still the yeah. person is choosing what to put in and what to leave out. And there's nothing wrong with that, but you're not seeing the entire story. And I think, for instance, her choices of how she revealed the unfolding of the relationship, despite the fact that he was a liar and all sorts of other things, I fully believe he showed up at their house a month after they'd been emailing that that really happened because it was in his best interest to love bomb her. Yeah, before anyone else got there. Right, and to get her... To overwhelm her with his wonderfulness. But there are some people that works on and some people that doesn't, too. Right, well, the, because he I, knows. I, I had a fr- another friend that, that happened to her several times, and she was like, Deborah on Dirty John, it was like, like I said, not all these guys are murderers. They're just, right. they're, they're bad users. people, they're users. When she would break up with them, they'd stalk her. It happened at least yes. three times. Yeah, because they, because, and I'm not... Again, victim blaming. No, it's just they know who to choose. They or, know, and they try it on other people. And Helen, it works or it doesn't. When right, it works, and, it works. And when his wife Diane died, he got some money, yeah. not a ton of money. But my guess is, this is a year later when he started working on Helen, or a little less than a year mm-hmm. later after his wife died. It was she died in July. It was it, it was about a year later he started working on Helen. The money was running out. He wasn't working. And he needed a new source of income. I don't know if he fully intended to kill her when he first met her. I think he thought, here's my gravy train. He, he may have just felt like, yeah, I'm kind of tired of her. I'm tired of having her around that fucking little dog. And it would be more lucrative for me for her to be dead, well, especially after the she left everything to him in the will. He was thinking of going to the doctor, too. Yes, because some of the... he was drugging her. Some of the speculation is he wasn't drugging her with the intention of killing her. Killing her. He was drugging her 
to control her and to control the money. But his end game, I would think, would you can't just keep drugging yeah, somebody no, forever. No, I think he probably would have killed her maybe after they were married, though. It would have been right. He would have been more secure. But if she was going to go to the doctor, and right? A lot of the speculation by police is that he felt his hand was called because she was going to go to the doctor and see what was wrong with her, and the sedative in her blood would have been fairly easy for them to find. So. Wow. That is the sad story that of Helen. That was good. Poor Helen. I know. Okay, women. So if you if a guy's coming on too strong, don't fall for it, please. Right. Don't get There's, love bombed. See, don't I'm, let yourself, I, I, I am anti-love bombing. I am too. It makes I'm, me I'm, nervous. I think it yeah. does for a lot of women, but some it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, some just suck it up. I mean, yeah. not suck it up. They well, part it up. of it is society tells you if a guy is behaving like this towards you, oh, isn't it romantic? And what society should say is give yourself some breathing room and think about what you want. She didn't even want to be in a relationship, but he kept coming on strong. You know, she told him it was too early to say the L word, and he oh, said it anyway. And he said she loved the fact that he said it. Yeah. You know, but in any case, anyway. we have some recommendations. Yes. We're both going to do a joint one. Yes. Because we both watched this. It's Leaving Neverland. Which is the HBO documentary about Michael Jackson's two-part documentary. It's about four hours. Right. And I haven't watched the Oprah thing after. The Oprah special after is good. There may be some Michael Jackson fans out there and stuff. So before we go into this, I just want to say where I'm coming from on this is that I was a fan of his when I was a kid. I found him increasingly creepy as he got older, yes. I was troubled by the, his constant companionship of young children. Yes. I can remember seeing him carrying around Emmanuel Lewis and me thinking, Emmanuel Lewis isn't a baby. He's a small person. He's a person who's small for his age. To carry him that. around is, to me, is what it was bizarre. He's not a mascot or a toy. So that rubbed me the wrong way. The fact that, and we talked about this a little bit when I, and my Phil Hartman, um, which was, I think, I don't know. I can't remember what episode. I like that one. His wife, someone who's constantly changing their appearance, there's something wrong. It's one thing to get a nose job because you don't like the way your nose looks. But when you are constantly, constantly changing the way you look, there's, you have some kind of self-hatred. I mean, this is my armchair psychology, but I don't care. I think that there's something deeply wrong with with how you feel about yourself and the fact that he changed his appearance constantly. When he, and the fact that he drugged himself and was on drugs all right. the time. Again, obviously. And we don't have to apologize. I'm on, I'm and, on the same page. Right. And before, so don't listen if it's going to Right. If it's going to And before we launch into our thing, whatever may have happened to him in his childhood, whatever bad things may have happened, that is separate from abusing children and just because you're a fan of somebody or like somebody doesn't mean you know most people would scream bloody hell if it was some dirty old guy in a dirty Mm t-shirt doing this to kids so because you're a fan of him and like him that doesn't give him a pass that doesn't mean he can't have done it and i know it won't change people's minds but this is not about michael jackson's talent this is not about his own childhood this is about is somebody who's narcissistic, 
self-absorbed and way he has way more money than they know what to do There's with. Too much money, too many enablers. Who's allowed to get away with? So let's launch into our okay. rating. Bad reenactments? No. No. There were no reenactments. There were no reenactments. And if there were, they were very small and subtle. I didn't get a chance to watch it again before we did this. I didn't either, but I don't. I don't think there were. They had plenty of video, which we'll get to. So So I would say narrative cliches. No. None. No. No. It was basically people telling the story once in a while. You can hear the producer ask a question. Yes. There was no narrator, which is always good as as far as yes. Racial gender obtuseness. No. No. And both of the victims that they uh, spoke to, Wade Robeson and... And Jimmy Shosh. Something like that. Sorry, Jimmy. They were both white. Yeah. I don't think it mattered. Uh, Michael Jackson's obvious. No, it wasn't an issue. It wasn't an issue in the thing. No. Lack of good visuals, no. No, they have many. A lot of archival footage, footage of the boys when they were young. Yes. Um, and, and lots of video and photos, and they were used well. Yes, I thought they were used well. Um, missing pieces. I get, took off half a point. I took, took off, off a point. point. I took off half a point because I would have liked to have known a little more um, about maybe from people that worked there, people, other people that were around. I realized it was these two men's stories. So they were talking to them. They don't have to be balanced. And and as the filmmaker on the Oprah said, on the Oprah, mm-hmm. on the Oprah show that was after it said, someone asked him about it. And he said, well, I didn't necessarily feel the need to talk to his family because they would have just, they weren't there and they, it wasn't about them and they would have just. Right. I mean, sometimes yeah. people gratuitously do that, but I don't think, especially in something that's been as publicized as this. I don't think you have to no. do that. You're telling the story of these two guys. Yes. The reason I took off a full point was not only that, but I felt like the documentary came from a position that you knew all the background. I didn't know a lot about Jordy and the other kid, the one with the yes. lawsuit. And the one he, I mean, I knew when it happened. Yes. I read about it, but I didn't know it off the top yes. of my head. And some more context and background about when those things happened which one was the civil suit, which one was the yes. criminal suit, which kid, like they mentioned the kid's name in passing. Yes. At the end of the first episode, and I don't even remember this, but I heard um, Jim Clemente mention on a real crime profile, it shows Michael Jackson walking under an umbrella with Jordy, who was recovering from, who ha- was having chemotherapy at the time, and Jim Clemente, who when he was with the FBI, worked on that case, and he talks about what a chilling image it was, it would have been a more chilling image for me if I had known who the hell it was. Yeah. And so I would have liked a little more of a narrative background. It was also unclear to me what was happening when, what was happening with Wade, as opposed yeah. to what was happening with yes, Jimmy, I would have liked more when of a these things yeah. were. And so I would have liked more of a timeline. It wasn't always clear to me. I can't imagine, like when Wade said he was alone with Michael at Neverland, I'm like, that's a huge estate. They couldn't possibly have been alone there. I would have liked to have known more about the staff. Yes, there must have who been was there, what their what the staff's role was. That's to me, that was enough that. missing pieces. Like I realize it's telling the story of these two men, mm-hmm. but I felt for those of us who aren't steeped in all the details of the saga, I think some context would have helped people understand and put into perspective, especially when these guys testified. Yes, and and you know testified that he hadn't done anything to them and everything. I would have liked to have known 
exactly how old they are, what was going on, which the which trial was which, and that type of thing. Yes, that's a good point. But I'll still keep my half off. Inaccuracy and anachronisms, no, I didn't think so. No. Except for like what you said. The only thing, I, I wouldn't say it was inaccuracy, and it might have been part of Missing Pieces, is I, I would have liked to have been reminded more what the year, I, I think Jimmy was about five years before Wade, but I'm not sure. Inaccuracy and anachronisms don't seem to really come into this. No, I think that just comes under missing pieces. Yeah. So, um, uh, storytelling, I give it a plus for storytelling because, I mean, I'm not adding points because we don't do that with negative knowledge. Mm. But I thought the way they told the story was good where they they kind of did it chronologically, like kind of because it kind of like they did it in the um they introduced you to the kids yes and and the they didn't start out it, it was kind of the same type of storytelling as with uh, abducted in plain sight where the people like the parents are talking is if you know you're like why are they saying nice things because right. they ask them to remember right good things so you're like they seem like they're on Michael's side but they really aren't because you get right to the they're telling what their point of view yeah. was I'm taking off half a point I know it's kind of double dipping but I found the lack of context in some ways was bothersome enough it detracted from the way the story was told although I agree with you the overall they, narrative it built arc, up it built up yeah and so by the, the time that they get they start talking. And also allowing the two men and their moms yes. to tell their stories, I, I thought was very powerful. fathers didn't want to be powerful. Well, one's the dead. Father, yeah, and then that, and he also, the brother was there, though. Of, of yeah, the, I, I, I found that the way they did it and the order they did things in and stuff worked really yes, well. But I do have to take off that half a point because I felt like, there were just parts that weren't clear to me. Well, I liked the um, interviews. Um, obviously, the two guys, uh, Wade and Jimmy, uh, were the most, were the stars, if you yeah. want to say. But they uh, they came across to me as truthful and honest and very forthcoming. And I don't know if this goes in storytelling or, yeah, I think I'd put it in storytelling. It would probably be hard, if you haven't seen this and you have really... Uh, are triggered by descriptions of being abused, uh, sexually abused, that you might not want to watch it because they it's kind of graphic and it was very difficult to listen to. But I, they had to... They had to say what happened. The thing is, when people speak in euphemisms or uh, gloss over details, I don't think some other people understand the seriousness of what happened. It's easy for, in your mind, as the listener, to not take it as seriously or to think, well, it probably wasn't that bad. When someone tells you exactly what happened, then you know exactly right. what happened. And also, I think it helps other people who have been abused when somebody talks about exactly what happened and people say, oh, that happened to me too. That's abuse. Yeah. Because... And they didn't even... And they do talk about later and they talk a lot about Oprah. Even later, I don't know if this will be storytelling. I think this will get... I'll wait until... Some, well, let's uh, move on to freshness. freshness. Yes, I think it was... I think it was very fresh. I mean, we've been hearing about but you Michael Jackson. Exactly what, yeah. That, but this is... But there has also been a lot of denial and a lot of victim blaming, a lot of And it was fashion. always this innuendo and uh, no one would actually come out and say anything because the people he settled with and stuff are, couldn't say anything. Actually, I... But at the time, like... I, actually, the people he settled with didn't realize it, but you can't... You can't legally, in a civil suit settlement 
keep somebody from revealing criminal activity. Ooh. So, but that doesn't mean you can't make the people think that they can't yeah. reveal it. Well, a good lawyer will make them think that. Yeah, um, which Michael had. It wasn't a surprise to me. Oh. I always thought he was guilty of it and had been given a pass. So it wasn't a surprise, but it still was shocking. To yeah, it, it's shocking because one thing is it really, not only the the stories of the young men, but all the details really makes you think about it more than you'd think if you just saw something on TV or People magazine or something. I, I think I texted you at one point, my God, you know, it's just occurring to me, this is a 32-year-old man. Because in a lot of ways, you didn't think of Michael Jackson as a 32-year-old or whatever man. He, he, and he's doing this with these these kids. And you can see he how calculating. that image of a Peter Pan. And not only, and it's like what we talked about in my story today, not only did he manipulate the kids, he manipulated the families. Yeah. So, uh, so the, one of the moms, at least, is still calling him, oh, he was our friend. He was such a good friend. He wasn't your friend. He was using you to get to your kid and making you think he was your friend because he it dropped just, people like a hot so potato. It's so much like abducted in plain sight. I know. There's so, so many parallels, except for the parents didn't, you know, do anything with him. Right. So freshness, yes. Repetition, no. 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 No, it, it was there. When it repeated things, it was because it was necessary for the story. There wasn't, like we talk about a lot, that constant just repetition that you get on like 48 hours is one and the one the thing that they did repeat um which was to great effect i thought was when i think it was both of them but when they were had described some of the things that he did they would show pictures of them as at the age right they were yeah seven or right and it's like oh my god and i hate to sound like one of those mothers but I will, you know, my daughter just turned eight. To see her and her little, you know, friends at school and just think about any of them, any of those little boys or girls, yeah. it's just disgusting. It, is it disgusting. just made me, it honestly made me sick to my stomach. Um, beating the drum, I'm going to say no. No. It's an it could to. have. It could have, but it told its Those, story. The men were, Jimmy was more emotional than Wade. I felt so bad. <laughs> but they were emotional, but they were. It was powerful because yes. they weren't over dramatic. Wade was very much more straightforward. The one thing that stuck with me that I thought was horrible about Jimmy was that wedding ring. He had that wedding ring that Michael Jackson, he married him. Yes. I mean, talk about manipulative. Jimmy s- struck me as a more sensitive yes. and he needed more help. kid who, who was manipulated in different ways than Wade. Wade was a very confident little boy. Well, and Jimmy started out not being a big fan of Michael Jackson, and Wade was like that. Wade was obsessed. Right. And the thing I thought, too, is it allowed the mothers to tell their story. They've come under a lot of criticism over the years. Like, people say, well, like, like mothers were basically selling out their kids, and it's a much more nuanced thing than that. And he could pick he his victims. He didn't only pick the kid victims, he picked the parent victims. And it's very easy. In fact, I would say that all the fans of his out there who don't believe any of this true are just as manipulated oh, as are. these mothers, yeah. if not more. 
and they don't even have personal contact with him. So he's not coming over and sitting in their living room and watching TV with you. You're just seeing this guy who you've seen on TV. Well, can you imagine this famous person, super, super famous. I mean, he was worldwide famous. I remember our cousin Jean in in Tanzania, uh, Uncle Jack, telling us that she was obsessed with him. Well, and also, he was a black guy who had transcended this. So he was a powerful role model for people that his music and and he made all this money. He came from Gary, Indiana. And I can see if you're a black kid or even adult saying, see, we can do this. And he was such a cute little boy. He was a cute, I love that. We had that album that mom got for us when we were little kids. And And I can't, I'm telling you, I can't even listen. Like I listened to the pop stations when I'm in the car with Hannah and, uh, one of his songs came on um, in a it's, it's conversation, hard. and Hannah's like, I don't want to listen. And I said, no, I don't want to listen to Michael Jackson anymore. And so then I was singing that ABC. She knew ABC, ABC yeah. was his song. And yeah. I said, well, that was when I was a little kid. Yeah. But in any case, so I gave it an 8.5. And I gave it a 9.5. And I, would, I thought it was an excellent documentary. It was the type I like. Not a lot of narration. Always annoys me. Even on like these, I was just thinking the other day, these stupid like garden, British garden shows I watch. The narrators are annoying yes. to me. We don't need a narrator. You don't need it. Anyways. No, you don't. But um, I have to get to work. Yes. So we won't. And I have to go pick up my daughter because another early release day. Mm, oh, geez, these kids today. These teachers never. No, I'm just kidding, teachers. Teachers, sorry. We love teachers. We have some in our family, even. Yeah. But, so, it'll be your turn. I just want to say it's... my turn next? I just want to say it's exciting. Next week, I'm going to a cabin up in northern Maine for a week to try to get a jump start on my book. I hope you don't end up in the the cesspool. Like, oh, yeah, she went to her cabin. I know, because I don't expect to have any contact. So, don't worry, she's not going to get Yeah, I have no men in my life. (laughs) Unless there's a stalker I don't know about. I shouldn't joke about it. We're trying to get back on our two-week schedule. I'm over the flu now, so hopefully... And for those of you that have asked about Groovy Tube, we are going to start it up again. Yeah, we just have to get our shit together. We really do. We really do. That six-week hiatus turned into, what, a year and a half? A year, I know. I know, I miss it, too. And we want to thank our Patreon patrons. Um, We've got a couple new ones. Thank you. And we will give you... uh, We're sending out... Yeah, we have to get our, our... swag shipment in and i know i keep saying this but i'm gonna get that promise newsletter out there and update our website sure she will all that other stuff okay we'll see you next time we didn't sign off last week and we didn't even have any i noticed when i listened we didn't even have any bloopers at the end no we didn't because i was had the flu and i was having trouble with the editing system but as i learned the new system we'll get our and then Yes. So thank you all for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Oh, oh wait, don't we have to say uh, crimeandstuffonline.com? Oh, yeah, check us out at crimeandstuff.com. <laughs> check us out at crimeandstuffonline.com. That's right. And also we're Instagramming more. Oh, we are. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. And stuff. I'm trying to tweet. So, Follow us. Until next time. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. He'd remove the SIM card from the fault. <laughs> He'd removed. He'd removed the. S- <laughs> Ooh, get get back over here. It's quiet for a second. Okay. Well, you don't need me. You're talking. I know, but still. Okay. Postmortem. <laughs> Fucking. No kidding. Ah! <laughs>
Parkin! 